chapter 8, verses 22 to 39, and you can find this on page 6 in your series handbook. Um, On the other page, there will also be note-taking space uh, for you during the sermon. So that's Luke chapter 8, verses 22 to 39. One day, Jesus said to his disciples, Let us go over to the other side of the lake. So they got into a boat and set out. As they sailed, he fell asleep. A squall came down on the lake so that the boat was being swamped, and they were in great danger. The disciples went and woke him, saying, Master, Master, we're going to drown. He got up and rebuked the wind and the raging waters. The storm subsided, and all was calm. Where is your faith? he asked his disciples. In fear and amazement, they asked one another, Who is this? He commands even the winds and the water, and they obey him. They sailed to the region of the Gerasenes, which is across the lake from Galilee. When Jesus stepped ashore, he was met by a demon-possessed man from the town. For a long time, this man had not worn clothes or lived in a house, but had lived in the tombs. When he saw Jesus, he cried out, fell at his feet, shouting at the top of his voice, What do you want with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I beg you, don't torture me. For Jesus had commanded the impure spirit to come out of the man. Many times it had seized him, and though he was chained hand and foot and kept under guard, he had broken his chains and had been driven by the demon to solitary places. Jesus asked him, What is your name? Legion, he replied, because many demons had gone into him, and they begged Jesus repeatedly um, not to order them to go into the abyss. A large herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside. The demons begged Jesus to let him go into the pigs, and he gave them permission. When the demons came out of the man, they went into the pigs, and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and was drowned. When those tending the pigs saw what had happened, they ran off and reported this in the town and countryside, and the people went out to see what had happened. When they came to Jesus, they found the man from whom the demons had gone out, sitting at Jesus' feet, dressed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. Those who had seen it told the people how the demon-possessed man had been cured. Then all the people of the region of the Gerasenes asked Jesus to leave them because they were overcome with fear. So we got into the boat and left. The man from whom the demons had gone out begged to go with him. But Jesus sent him away, saying, Return home and tell how much God has done for you. So the man went away and told all over town how much Jesus had done for him. Thanks for that reading, Chris. Um, If you're new or visiting, my name's Rod. I'm one of the pastors here at WBC. And as you've heard already from Mark, we're back into uh, Luke for this term. And uh, we're looking at uh, this passage tonight as we get back into the series. So let me pray for us. ask that God will help us as we grapple with a text which is really well known. I think we feel like we know these stories backwards, perhaps, if you've been a Christian number of years. But I think there's a lot that challenges us as we look to respond to it. So let's ask for God's help. Our Heavenly Father, we do thank you that you have given us your word, that you've chosen to reveal yourself to us, that we might firstly know 
your plan of salvation, that we might come to your Son, the Lord Jesus. But if we have done that, to then live in the light of his Lordship, to understand his authority, to respond uh, to his leading. And we pray tonight that you might challenge us afresh, that you may speak to us through your word, that your spirit may apply it to our hearts and minds. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, have you ever been in a boat in a storm? I can remember some years ago now, I was a teenager uh, at this point, um, going with my parents and my siblings um, across Bass Strait. Uh, We were going on the Able Tasman cruise ship. Of course, they call it the Spirit of Tasmania these days. It's a far funkier title. And um, you get on at Melbourne, of course, and then you travel across to Devonport. And we had got there in the late afternoon, we put our van onto the boat, and we we're going to travel basically overnight and uh, wake up in the morning in Devonport. But of course, Bass Strait is a small stretch of water, but it's renowned for having big storms and waves. So you only have to see uh, the Sydney to Hobart yacht race on a bad weather year to see all the carnage that can take place. And it just so happened that when we went this time, uh, it was calm as we arrived in Melbourne, but by late evening, a big storm had whipped up. And by the time we were getting into bed, we got those uh, metal bunks and you're nearly bashing your head just trying to get into sleep. You could tell it was going to be one of those rough nights where it was going to be hard to sleep. And that was the case. It was fairly broken as the night went on. And as we woke up in the morning, most of the storm had passed, but there was this huge swell still. The waves were massive. And I can still distinctly remember walking to the breakfast area in the morning with all these green-faced people coming back the other way, some holding brown paper bags and thinking, this is not very uh, appealing to an appetite. And getting there to the breakfast area and realizing, devoid of people, that it was very hard to eat breakfast because everything was moving around the table. And it was just one of those mornings. But just imagine... At that point, especially for those seasick people that were just longing to get off this boat, if somebody had walked out on the deck at that moment and said, be still, calm storm, and things had instantly stopped, we would have been astounded, wouldn't we? They'd be, who is this person? Go out and congratulate them. Who can do that? But of course, that's the scenario here in Luke chapter 8. And of course, it's Jesus uh, rather than somebody on the spirit of Tasmania. But it's, it's a small sailing boat. And so the danger here is not that you won't be able to eat your breakfast, but it's life and death. And as we come to this passage and we see this well-known story of Christ's power, the question that I want us to think about from this first episode and then the one that follows is this. How should we respond to Christ's power? How should we respond to Christ's power? What are the implications of these things that he can do. And the first answer to that question is this. Answer one, by grasping his identity. By grasping his identity. So notice again how Jesus shows his authority over nature in this storm account from verse 22. One day Jesus said to his disciples, let us go over to the other side of the lake. And so they got into the boat and set out. And as they sailed, he fell asleep. A squall came down on the lake so that the boat was being swamped and they were in great danger. The disciples went and woke him saying, Master, Master, we're going to drown. He got up and rebuked the wind and the raging waters. The storm subsided and all was calm. Where is your faith? He asked his disciples. And in fear and amazement, they asked one another, Who is this? He commands even the winds and the water and they obey him. 
So let's think about this scene for a moment. Jesus in a boat, a squall comes up. He's the one that sent them on this journey and he seems to have promptly fallen asleep and then they're in the midst of this storm. So there's no doubt that by the time they're waking him up, they're a bit concerned, perhaps frustrated. But silent, violent, uh, sudden violent storms on the Sea of Galilee are not uncommon. You have often the warmer uh, air temperature over the surface of the water and then there's quite high uh, mountains around the ring of the Sea of Galilee, especially on the eastern shore. And you have cold air that descends down as it meets. It creates these violent storms that can whip up quickly. And so as we read this story, um, it's a likely scenario, but we also know that the disciples, many of them at least, are fishermen. They're veterans. They have fished on this lake for years. They must have been through thousands of situations like this, and yet they're fearful. And so this has to be a huge storm. And in the midst of all the commotion that then must have gone on as they're trying to uh, bail water out, presumably from their boat as it's being swamped by huge waves, Jesus is sleeping amidst all of this. Obviously uh, exhausted from uh, the ministry that's been going on before this. But as they come to Jesus, uh, we see it more clearly in Mark's parallel account. They actually think that he doesn't care. In Mark's account, they say, don't you care that we're going to drown? And Jesus gets up, he rebukes the wind and the waves, and then he turns and rebukes his disciples. Where is your faith? No, fear had driven out faith at this point. And it's interesting because at one moment they're fearful of the storm. Many of them, as we said, veteran fishermen. The next moment, they're fearful of Jesus himself. Do you notice it says, in fear and amazement, they say to one another, who is this? They're shocked by what he is able to do. And this question of Jesus' identity shows the disciples' real deficiency of faith. I mean, if they really understood him as the heaven-sent Messiah the Christ that had been waited for for centuries, could they believe that his life and theirs would be taken through a storm? I mean, if he is the one, then he has power over all things. How can the creator be swamped by his own creation? If they're with him, they're safe, surely. And though they had witnessed his power and his authority, even as he calmed this storm, they just can't fully recognize his authority, his identity. They've been following him. They've been hearing his teaching. They've seen a number of miracles up to this point in Luke's gospel. You would think of all the people that we're going to read about in Luke's gospel, how could they not fully grasp Jesus? How can they not know? It goes to show, doesn't it? Maybe they saw him as a wonderful teacher. Perhaps they hoped he was the Messiah. But there's this disconnect. The dots are all lined up, but they can't join them, it seems. But notice how their question, their question of who he is, is answered by a very unlikely source in what unfolds next. So have a look at verses 26 to 28 with me. Verse 26, Luke writes, They sailed to the region of the Gerasenes. So the storm is calm. They keep going on their journey across to the eastern side of the lake, across the lake from Galilee. When Jesus stepped ashore, he was met by a demon-possessed man from the town, for a long time this man had not worn clothes or lived in a house, but had lived in the tombs. And when he saw Jesus, he cried out, fell at his feet, and shouting at the top of his voice, What do you want with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I beg you, don't torture me. 
Well, how's that for an introduction as you land on the shore on the eastern side? At the end of this boat ride, they come to this Gentile region. Very few Jews lived on the eastern side of the Lake of Galilee. Jesus has just demonstrated his authority over nature. He's now going to demonstrate his authority over the spiritual realm. And it's like this man is drawn into the confrontation. He is possessed, and rather than running away from Jesus, who he's fearful of, he comes straight at him, as it were. And though the disciples had witnessed Christ's power over the wind and waves and they couldn't grasp his identity, suddenly, in contrast, the evil spirit gives us the answer to their question. Who is this? What do you want with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? There's the answer. Demons have got the answer. They know who he is. They acknowledge his divinity and they shudder. He's their judge. He's the one who will hand out their sentence at the proper time. The only answer that does justice to this question that the disciples had is that Jesus is the God-man. I mean, they should have known it even before uh, these evil spirits are blurting it out before them, answering their question. They should have known it even in the storm. And they would have gone to the synagogue week after week after week. They would have heard big passages from the Old Testament read out. They would have known in a number of the Psalms where it says that only God can calm the storm, that only God is in charge of creation. Of course he is. He's the creator. And so one example, Psalm 107, verse 24 They saw the works of the Lord, his wonderful deeds in the deep. For he spoke and he stirred up the tempest that lifted high the waves. They mounted up to the heavens. They went down to the depths. In their peril, their courage melted away. And then they cried out to the Lord in their trouble. And he brought them out of their distress. He stilled the storm to a whisper. The waves of the sea were hushed. Here is Jesus. This man is God. As we think on these well-known stories and apply this to ourselves, we can see that the disciples may well have been struggling here, but we can too, even if we say that we're wanting to follow Jesus. See, as we think about this first section, if the main point is that Jesus seemed to have power because of who he is, what are the implications of that for us? I want to put it to you that we too can have the same desperate feelings that the disciples had on the boat when things suddenly get a bit out of control, when the storms of life break over us. We can have that feeling when we're in the midst of events that are beyond our control, that we're helpless, that we can't fix things. And that's hard, isn't it? Especially in our society today, because we live in this society that tells us you can have everything measured and worked out, that you're in control. You can even determine how long you'll live because you've just got to exercise and eat right, do these things. You can predict and determine all the outcomes. And yet even as our society sort of tells us this thing, this message over and over, you're in charge, it just hits us and bounces off. We know it's nonsense in reality. The things happen to us, that curveballs are thrown at us all the time and we're thrown. And at that point, then we question, well, what's going on? Why is God allowing this in my life? Doesn't he care? Has he fallen asleep at the wheel? We better go and wake him up. Master, master, we're going to drown. And so we've got to learn like the disciples needed to learn that we don't need to panic at that point. God's still on the throne. He's still in charge. He still loves and cares for those who are his. 
we have to grasp again, who is this Jesus? Who is the identity of the one that I follow? Isn't he in charge of the wind and the waves? Can't he look after my little life? The storms in our lives today, though, sometimes arrive in a rush. I think that's why we can get thrown, if we, even if we say we're a believer. You know, whether it's the sudden loss of a job, or an illness that comes upon us, or maybe a close family member, or perhaps it's the actual death of a loved one, or maybe a really um, difficult relationship, a broken relationship suddenly. And we're finding things really hard at those moments when that comes upon us, we can doubt God's goodness. And we can suddenly feel that you know, God has just you know, left us alone and somehow we're fending for ourselves. You know, in his book, Finding God, uh, Larry Crabb, who's an American author and counselor, cared for many people, he sketched his own struggle in this regard in this book. He tells the painful story of losing his own brother in 1991, the plane crash. Uh, created a lot of turmoil in the family, including for Larry as he responded to it. And he, I guess, walks through in his book the various stages of reaction he had and how he felt about his relationship with God, how he was so angry to begin with that God had allowed this to happen and then, then he hated God and then, well, he needed God because he was helpless and he was frustrated. And he talks about how new light shone on his walk with God but only after there was a lot of darkness. And the foundation of that growing understanding that started to return was recognizing the fact that God loved him, that God still cared, and that he shouldn't doubt God. He shouldn't doubt God. I think our, pro our problem at that point when things do unravel is we can compare ourselves with others who seem to be having a good run where no difficult things have happened. Or perhaps what's lying underneath is this expectation that God will always bless us if we're a believer, that you know, the design of the Christian life is somehow that we'll be navigated through all the difficulties and we'll have a comfortable life. We won't face the problems of others. But of course, we're never promised that in God's word. God has never promised that our lives would be free of pain or disappointment or the storms that will come. In fact, God's word promises the opposite. The persecution will follow anyone who seriously follows Jesus. That difficulties will come upon us. But what God does promise is to give us the resources when we come to those moments. Hebrews 4.16, he promises us grace and mercy to help us in our time of need. God is always with us, walking through it. He'll walk through the raging waters with us. He will assist us and help us. He's always loving us and caring for us, even in the hardest moments. And so it's at those moments, indeed at all times, that we have to acknowledge that Christ is in charge. To acknowledge his power, even when circumstances are beyond us. Think about the disciples again. I mean, how many storms would they have been in on the Lake of Galilee? And here's yet another one. And this time Jesus is with them. But again, they find themselves helpless. It's not going right. They're going to be swamped. They're fearing they're going to die. They're going to be drowned in this storm. And so they go to Jesus. And though they panic, though they're doubting Jesus, the one thing that they do right in the situation is that they go to the source of help. They do go to Jesus and seek his assistance. That's what we're called to do as well. 
know, one of the greatest uh, hymns of faith was written in response to such a storm, a literal storm. I'm sure you know something of the story. In 1873, uh, Horatio Spafford uh, was married to his wife, Anna. They had four daughters. Uh, He was a high-flying lawyer, actually, in Chicago. He was involved in a Presbyterian church. He was an elder and leader in the church. He decided that they were going to go from America across to England, and he was going with the family, but then a whole lot of business stuff happened just as they were about to leave, and so he sent his wife and children ahead. He would catch the next boat and catch up with them. Well, of course, their boat never made it. Uh, Partway across the Atlantic, it was rammed by another boat uh, in foggy conditions. 226 people died, including all four of his daughters. His wife was actually knocked unconscious and sort of picked up from the driftwood that remained from the boat and survived. And she gets to London and she sends a cable back to him, saved alone, what now? Well, he gets on the next boat as planned, And as he's getting to the very spot where his four daughters had perished, he's told that this is where it happened and he is writing the hymn, It is well with my soul. Let me remind you of the first verse again. When peace like a river river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. Horatio got it. God is still on the throne even at that moment. He still loves and cares for him and his wife, Anna. You know, and sometimes God will take us through the deepest troughs and we think, well, you know, we've done our time and therefore we're not going to face anything difficult again. But God may yet prepare us for more that's ahead. We don't like the thought of that. But it was true even in the case of the Spaffords. They lost all four of their daughters, but they were able to have three more children. The first of them was a son, and he died four years later of scarlet fever. Why, oh why, I'm sure they said. But God still loved them and cared for them. He is still with them in that storm. He sustained them. They continued in their faith throughout their life. God is with us. He can overcome. And the reason we know it is because Jesus has all authority. We need to know who we're dealing with, the identity of the one who we call Lord. He really is in charge. And it brings us to a second answer. A second answer to our question of how we should respond to Christ's power. We should not only trust him in the difficulties that come, but we need to respond with courageous witnessing, not fear. Courageous witnessing, not fear. Have a look again from verse 29 to 32. Luke goes on with the story. For Jesus had commanded the impure spirit to come out of the man. Many times it had seized him, and though he was chained hand and foot and kept under guard, he had broken his chains and been driven by the demon to solitary places. Jesus asked him, what is your name? Legion, he replied, because many demons had gone into him. And they begged Jesus repeatedly not to order them to go into the abyss. A large herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside. The demons begged Jesus to let them go into the pigs, and he gave them permission. So we get a bit of a summary, don't we, in verse 29 of this scenario. Um, The life that this man faced, it's terrible. This demon's 
demon-possessed man. He's so strong, no one could bind him. Obviously, the community had sought to sort of care for him and themselves, protect themselves by having him bound, by even having people to guard him, and none of it had worked. Uh, The power through uh, these forces within him was too much, and so he had just roamed around amongst the tombs. They had just given up, it seems, in trying to subdue him. In the summary of the situation, we see this clearly self-destructive effect. It drives him away into solitary places. He has no contact with the people from his hometown. In fact, Mark's account is even more harrowing because he talks about him yelling out day and night and cutting himself with stones. I mean, it's a disturbing picture, the destructive effects of evil in this way. And here we have Jesus confronted by this man as soon as he gets ashore. And not only do they recognize who Jesus is, but they're fearful of his power over them. And this is despite the demon's name being Legion. Right? This is the Roman era, Legion, thousand soldiers. It's a company of soldiers, a thousand or more. We don't know how many demons have possessed this man, but it seems like there is many. And it may seem in that sense that Jesus is outnumbered, but he's certainly not outmatched. In verse 28, they've begged him not to be not to be tortured or literally terrorized by Jesus. And then in verses 31 and 32, they beg Jesus not to order them to go into the abyss, but rather into a nearby herd of pigs. Now, the abyss refers to the abode of the dead or a place of judgment, being held for the judgment day. It seems like they wanted to continue to have a presence in this area to wreak the kind of havoc they had done in this man's life. And so they try to continue And Jesus agrees to their request. He orders them to go. And of course, we know the whole herd rushes down the slope into the sea and they're drowned. And we saw this very stark picture of the destructive power of evil, uh, not in the life of this man, but here in this whole herd. Perhaps a Jewish reader that um, viewed pigs as an unclean animal that would be less concerned. But I think we're a little shocked as we read this. You know, why does Jesus allow this destruction in this way? Well, I think he probably allows this incident to demonstrate in a very painful manner, especially for all the people who owned the pigs, that the presence of evil results in death. I mean, this man with what he had faced is heading towards eternal death. And it also illustrates that Jesus puts people and spiritual realities above other considerations, doesn't it? He has matchless authority over the powers of darkness here. Just with a word, he can command them to go. They're in fear of him. He speaks and they are driven out. But then we get the aftermath of this situation. And they're two very different responses. On the one hand, there are the townspeople that hear about it all because the herdsmen and those that were there at the time rush back into town to tell everyone. And then there is the man who has been healed. And of course, pretty soon, um, this whole concentration of people seem to have come out of the town and they've sort of cornered Jesus. They're trying to find out what has gone on. And as they come to Jesus, there is this man that they know is a dangerous person that they've wanted to have nothing to do with, that they're fearful of. And here he is dressed for the first time in a long time, sitting in his right mind at the feet of Jesus, listening. Astonishing, surely. Now, what reaction would you expect from the crowd at that point? Would you think they would say, hallelujah, this is amazing. Jesus, we've got a long list of troubles back in our town. Now come with us. Let's get you onto these tasks. There's so much that we could do. We don't get anything like that. 
They're fearful. They're upset, we're told in Mark's account, about their economic loss. But they're fearful of Jesus. They don't see in him the Messiah that brings life. Here is this man's life completely renewed on the spot after years and years of self-destruction. And their reaction is fear. Go away, Jesus. We don't want you in our town. But then on the other hand, there's the man that's been healed. You couldn't get someone more excited. He's wanting to be one of Jesus' disciples now. Let me come with you. I'll follow you wherever you're going to go. Jesus stops him, doesn't he? It's interesting. He says, no, I don't want you to follow me. He's not going to be one of the foundational 12 disciples that starts the New Testament church. Rather, he's going to be sent by Jesus back to his family, back to his hometown, so that he might share the wonders of God, what God has just done in his life through Christ's miraculous healing power before everyone. And what's even more amazing is that the man's immediately obedient. I mean, think about it. If you can possibly put yourself in his shoes, he, everyone would be fearful of him. Who's going to believe as he goes back to town that he's this changed person? Who's going to want to talk to him, hear his story? We don't want anything to do with this guy. This guy's crazy. We know what he is. But he goes and he tells his story to his family, his hometown. In fact, when you read Mark's account, the parallel account, he goes to 10 towns as part of a region called the Decapolis. There's 10 towns, 10 Gentile cities in this whole area. And he goes to all of them. He becomes an evangelist to his whole region, an evangelist to the Gentiles, telling of the wonders of God in his life. And what a story he had to tell. And it's no wonder that Mark's account says, Everyone he spoke to, the people were amazed. Well, they'd have to be. They all knew who he was. How could this possibly be the same guy? Isn't it true that those who are most radically transformed often end up being the strongest witnesses to the Lord? I mean, it doesn't have to be that way, but so often is. This guy's had radical change. Unbelievable change for those who knew him. And he is telling his story. You notice that this man uh, didn't need to raise support. He didn't need to find a mission field. Jesus just sent him back to his own family, his own town. Now, in this month of May, it's a month in which we uh, celebrate mission, and in particular, overseas mission. As we um, Baptist ministries, May is their mission month. And we've got many gospel partners overseas. And we need to see the gospel go to the ends of the earth. But we also need to see the gospel come to Wollongong to reach all of the Illawarra. And there's a great example here, isn't there? Some are called to go, others are called to stay, but we're all called to share. And this man's got a story to share. Well, imagine what it might mean for you to do that tomorrow throughout the Illawarra like this guy. I think that's kind of a confronting thought. What fears are holding you back courageously living and witnessing for Jesus? You know, is it the disapproval of family or close friends? If you were to go back to your family or your good friends, maybe your hometown if you're from elsewhere... Would you fear rejection, that people would not give you a hearing? As you told your story about how Jesus had worked miraculously to save you. You see, every one of us has got a miraculous story. You may not think it's as impressive as this guy's, 
But if God has brought you to faith in his son, the Lord Jesus, you have a story. Maybe you fear that they would cut you off, that it would mar, there'd be loss of relationship. Maybe you're worried that you won't have the answer to every question that people might ask. If I start in with conversations about this stuff with my work colleagues, they're going to come up and they're going to say, what about this question? What about this issue? And I don't know what I'm going to say. The situation will be a bit out of control at that point. Or maybe that's the real fear for us. We're so used to living in this neat comfortable environment that we often create for ourselves that stepping out of it doing something where we don't know the reaction of what might happen next trusting god with what he's going to do well that's scary i'm not sure i want to do that i want to keep hold tightly of the reins of my life you see accepting jesus as lord brings change you lose control of your life you have somebody else that's on the throne it's not you however much you might try to be. Now, let me say, it's hard, isn't it? If you're like me, you just don't walk down the street and pass out your credit card to somebody. You don't just run into a stranger and say, here's my car keys, take it for a spin. I'm being asked to trust my whole life to Jesus here. How can I just give over everything, not know what's going to happen next, to be just stepping out in faith all the time with him? Well, isn't this couple of incidents the answer to that question? I mean, you're not being asked to follow just anyone. It's the one who has power over the wind and the waves, who can just speak a word, and the man is exercised of the demons that have held control over him for years. Jesus, the one who is in charge of all things. You know, sometimes these fears that we have are unvoiced. They're even unconscious but they can be holding us back from acting on what we know to be true. If you know Christ's authority, then that needs to be displayed. We need to act on that in our life day by day. We can't be ruled by fear all the time. Jesus calls us to step out, to realize he's the one with all power. More than that, he's got the power to care for you, to work out what happens next, both now and for eternity. Let me give you an example of somebody who really lived this way against all odds. Uh, Her name is Christiana Tsai. Uh, She was a Chinese lady um, who grew up in a very wealthy family. Her um, father was the governor of the Jingsu province in China. Uh, She um, had a very wealthy family that she came from, but she had a fascination with the English language. And this is in the 1930s and 40s in China, and there was um, some missionary families that were in her region, and they had started a school, and she desperately wanted to go to this missionary school so that she could learn English. But her family were really worried about this. They were trying to stop her altogether from being interested in that. Uh, Eventually they relented, but they put so much pressure on her about it, she went in determined, look, I'm just going to learn the English language and I'm not going to listen to any of their talk about religion. I'm not going to be swayed by anything they say. And she was uh, learning there for a couple of years and then uh, an invited missionary had come and visited uh, the missionary school and gave a gospel presentation, spoke about Jesus as the light of the world. She was touched by the message and converted to Christianity. And as she 
went home thinking about how that would be shared. Her family soon found out about it and they were enraged. They pressured her to turn away from her newfound faith. They burnt her Bible. They pressured her and took her out of the school and said, you're not going back there anymore. You're not to have contact with these people. And she was just put upon from all sides in a huge extended family. But she had this inner peace in the midst of it all. She just kept praying. She kept finding another Bible. She kept going. She said, I'm just going to pray for my family. Her brother in particular made it his uh, role in life to make things difficult for her about her faith. And after a couple of years, uh, her brother called all of the family together, didn't tell them why they were coming together. And when he'd got everybody there, he started speaking about her and her faith. And she thought, oh, no. And then he announced, I have seen the persecution that she has been under. I've seen the struggle she's had even with her health and how she has this peace and this attitude to life that is just astounding. And I have come to the belief that there must be a God and I'm going to follow her God. What started like a domino effect in the years that followed, 55 members of her family came to faith. She was struck down with malaria in that period and a visit to Shanghai And it was a very debilitating one. They didn't have much treatment. She was forced to return home. And her eyes became very sensitive to light. And so she stayed basically at home for many years following that in semi-darkness all the time. But because people had started to hear her story, thousands upon thousands of people came to her to hear her testimony about what God had done in her life, about what God was doing in her family. So much so that she became known as the Queen of the Dark Chamber. And so when she wrote her autobiography a few years later, that was its title. And you would say against all odds this had happened. Eventually her mother had had basically a lifelong opium addiction, came to faith, and they ministered together to reach people in the Jingsu province. What are the odds of that? Well, I want to ask you the question. Do you, where do you stand in terms of living for Jesus like that? Christ's power calls for at least two responses as we've seen tonight from this passage. Firstly, we have to recognize the identity of Jesus. Not just, oh yes, I know Jesus, he's supposed to be the Messiah. But to truly recognize his authority and lordship over our life and to live by it. To not be a disciple on the boat who's been following him and listening to him for years and then to say, who is this? He can control the wind as well. But to acknowledge that he truly is the son of God, that he's in charge of anything that's going to happen in your life tomorrow and the next day and for the rest. That every day of your life has been written in his book before it even came to be. That he's truly the one to live for. And secondly, that we're called as a result to be courageous witnesses. We're to live like Christiana Sai, against all odds, whatever the difficulty, we're going to share our story, our testimony, what God has done in us. And we're going to do that because we're not going to be held back by fear. We're not going to live worried about what other people think all the time because we play to an audience of one. It only matters what God thinks. It doesn't matter what anyone else says. Courageous living for Jesus. Christ followers who wholeheartedly proclaim his power. Why do they proclaim it? Because they know it. They've experienced it. Like I said earlier, you've got a story if you've come to faith in Jesus. 
You might say, oh, well, look, I'm not Christiana Sai. I'm never going to write an autobiography that people are going to buy. Your story is powerful. For the friends and family that God has placed you amongst, your story will be the one that will impact them. You're the life that they're observing. And you're to stand up for your Lord. We're free to serve Jesus fully, knowing that our future is secure in him. We boldly declare because we've been empowered by him. He's poured out his spirit on us that we may declare his praises. That we may see more people, God willing, drawn out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the disciples and their struggles as we see our own struggles, our own needs as well. Uh, Lord, help us, we pray. Help us to fully trust you with our lives, to acknowledge the authority that Jesus has over all things and to respond to him, to go as he says go, to share as he says share, to be those that are not ruled by fear but who live in the light of this newfound confidence and the power that Christ gives. For we ask it in his name. Amen.